Good afternoon, everyone. In a previous sermon, we discussed reasons for the giving of the Old Covenant. In an overall sense, the covenant with Israel established God's relationship with the nation of Israel. He was their God. He was their king. And they would obey his law. That is, at least that was what they agreed to do. And in turn, he would bless them and make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation if they actually followed through on their end of the, of the agreement. In Exodus 19 and verse 5, it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Thus, as we covered in the last sermon, the covenant with Israel was the constitution for the nation. In a similar manner, the new covenant is the constitution for the church or spiritual Israel. The Israel in the wilderness was a physical nation and God established his covenant with that physical nation. But it was a type of a spiritual nation that is referred to in Scripture as spiritual Israel. Peter wrote to the church in 1 Peter 2, in verse 9, you are a chosen generation. And by the way, the, the word translated generation from the Greek can mean not just what we think of as a generation, that is a period of time during which a people exist, but it often means a kind. And many cases where this word is used and translated generation, that's what it actually means. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Now notice he's speaking to the church and he says, to the church, you are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Essentially, that was the same promise that God gave to Israel in the wilderness, if they would obey his laws. He goes on to say in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once we're not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So we see the parallel, uh, at least I hope you can see the parallel between these two covenants. One is really a type of the other. Physical Israel is a type of spiritual Israel, the holy nation, special people a royal priesthood. And so this is the covenant that God is making with the church. This is the promise. This is at least part of the promise that is included in that covenant agreement. Now, we become a part of the church of God. We become a part of this royal priesthood, this holy nation, by entering into the covenant the new covenant with God. 
Paul wrote in Hebrews 9, verse 15, speaking of Jesus Christ, that he, that is Christ, is mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. Jesus Christ fulfills the type as the mediator of the new covenant. Now, the purpose then of the new covenant is to establish a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the people of God, spiritual Israel. And so we might address ourselves then to several specific questions regarding the new covenant. And these are, we will take them in order. First of all, how does the new covenant relate to the old? Secondly, how does the new covenant provide for that which was lacking under the old covenant, namely conversion by the Holy Spirit? And to whom does the new covenant apply? First of all, how does the new covenant relate to the old? We've already made some preliminary remarks in regard to this question. But there are some pertinent facts regarding the question we need to understand. As I mentioned, the old covenant was a type of the new covenant. As we read in the book of Romans, the Jews had the form of knowledge and truth in the law, that is, in the old covenant. The form of knowledge and truth in the law. And I believe I stated earlier in an earlier sermon that every facet of the old covenant had a spiritual principle or an, an, an immutable law behind it. And the Old Covenant, however, was a limited physical application of spiritual, unchangeable, immutable law. Now, it wasn't altogether physical. There's, there, there were spiritual elements to it, certainly. But to a large extent, it was a physical application of spiritual principles or immutable laws. And while the Old Covenant was a type of the New Covenant, it was not an exact likeness of the New Covenant. And this is where many people jump the track and get confused. There are people today who think that every law of the Old Covenant must be applied precisely as it was applied in ancient Israel, even if one is a Christian and all the laws, the details, must be applied in exactly the same way as specified in the book of the law. But what the truth is, is that the Old Covenant, although it was a type of the New Covenant, was not an exact likeness of the New Covenant. There are differences, and we'll get into some of those differences as we proceed here. Now, you may think that may contradict what was said earlier, but it does not, and it's important that we understand why it does not, for example, the sacrifices. And Paul uses the sacrifices as an example to illustrate this point. In Hebrews 10 and verse 1, he said, The law, that is the old covenant, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things. Notice he said the law, meaning the old covenant, 
had a shadow or an outline as your shadow cast, in a sense, a likeness of your body if you're standing in the light and there's a shadow. It will have an indication of what your body is shaped like, but it is not the body. It's not the very image. It's not the thing itself. And so the Old Covenant was a likeness of the new, but it is not the new. And there are differences. The Old Covenant illustrated a general outline of the good things which would replace it. As a shadow reveals the general shape of a human or other form, but the exact details of application in terms of the laws differ. For example, the sacrifices under the Old Covenant were offered continually. That is, they were offered daily. There were daily sacrifices, morning and evening sacrifices, and then there were other sacrifices that were offered periodically. But the sacrifices were offered continually or every day. But under the New Covenant, the sacrifice, the primary sacrifice is Jesus Christ. And those sacrifices were to a large extent a type intended to be a type or symbolic or to picture the various aspects of Jesus Christ's sacrifice. Now they have other significance as well, but that is the primary significance for many of them. And Christ's sacrifice sanctifies under the new covenant, those under the new covenant, once for all. As Paul wrote in Hebrews 10, beginning with verse 11, every priest stands daily ministering or administering, and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The sacrifices under the Old Covenant could never take away sins. They were not sufficient. They were merely symbolic of something greater. But he goes on to say, This man, speaking of Christ, after he had offered the sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. So Christ's one sacrifice stands for all time. The animal sacrifices had to be renewed daily or yearly or weekly, depending on the circumstances. So we see, while the application differed, the spiritual law requiring blood or a life to atone for sin is present in both cases. Now, there is then that very significant difference. However, the difference may not be as great as it might seem at first because the sacrifices of the old covenant had to be slaughtered daily and Christ's one death is sufficient for all time. But nevertheless, we must apply that sacrifice daily or continually as we seek grace before the throne of God. And really that is another aspect of what the sacrifices signify that there is a continuing sacrifice that we must apply. Notice in Hebrews 4 and verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we're told to become to come boldly before the throne of grace, that is before God's throne, to obtain mercy and we're told in Hebrews 10, verse 22, let us draw near, draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience 
and our bodies washed with pure water. This language is taken from the rituals that were involved in the sacrificial system. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 31, I die daily. I die daily. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10, that Christians are always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now, it's important that we pay careful attention to these words because what he's saying is that our lives are to be a continuing and continual sacrifice. And in that sense, we share in the death of Jesus Christ daily and continually. Now, how often are we to approach God's throne? How often should we go to God's throne of grace to offer thanksgiving and to seek His grace and His strength? In 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 17, it says, Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. In other words, pray daily. And we should be praying, usually several times a day. In Hebrews 13 verse 15, it stated, Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. Let us continually. In other words, again, continually often means daily in this context. Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. So we see that there are differences in how the sacrifices are applied under the new covenant, and there are also similarities in regard to how they are applied with reference to the old covenant. Another illustration of how the old covenant and the new covenant are the same in principle, but different in application, is to be found in a law that many would very likely assume would have no application under the New Covenant. Now, actually, there is no law under the Old Covenant that does not have its application in a broader and more meaningful sense under the New Covenant. Because, as I mentioned, the laws given under the Old Covenant were a limited application of immutable spiritual laws. In the so-called Sermon on the Mount, Christ said to his disciples, you've heard that it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. We'll get to another example in a minute, but first let's look at this example where people often think that Christ threw out the Old Covenant and replaced it with something entirely new. Jesus said, to the Jews, you have heard that it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, and this is the place where many people jump the track and assume that Christ ripped the old law to shreds and threw it to the four winds coming up with a new law. And this is in spite of the fact that Jesus had just stated in the very same chapter of Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he said, think not I came to destroy the law. He said, do not think I came to destroy the law. In the book, 
A History of Medieval Civilization, written by Joseph Damas. The author states in reference to this subject, and I'm quoting here, his second law, that is Christ's second law, represented a fundamental departure from the old law to supersede the Mosaic law of revenge. Christ issued an uncompromising command to love everyone. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this is what this historian, this man who makes his living writing history books for college students, or he did, this is from some years ago. But his assumption was that the law that Christ gave here, the command that Christ gave, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, was a fundamental departure from the old law. Is that true? Now, this is what many people assume. But is it true? Did Christ's statement, love your neighbor as yourself, represent a fundamental departure from the old law? No, it didn't. In fact, when Christ made that statement, he was quoting a commandment from the old law, that is, from the Old Testament, which is found in Leviticus 19 and verse 18, where it says, You shall not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now notice not only is the command included in this scripture to love your neighbor as yourself, but also Jesus said you shall not avenge. You shall not seek vengeance, nor shall you bear any grudge against another person. As far as vengeance is concerned, it is as much a part of the new covenant as it was of the old. But in neither covenant is vengeance properly in the hands of individuals, but is the prerogative of God or those that he appoints specifically to execute his judgment. Notice in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 35, God says, vengeance is mine. In Psalm 94, beginning with verse 1, it reads, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, render punishment to the proud. So here are two scriptures where we see that vengeance belongs to God from the Old Testament. And in Romans 12, verse 19, Paul said, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He was quoting from the Old Testament when he wrote that. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. So he's using a scripture from the Old Testament to instruct Christians not to seek to avenge themselves. In Hebrews 10, beginning with verse 28, it says, Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, speaking here of the Old Covenant. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and again the Lord will judge his people. Not only is love toward neighbor 
a part of the Old Covenant as well as the New Covenant. Vengeance is a part of the New Covenant as much as it was of the Old Covenant. And in both cases, vengeance belongs to God. And what some might suppose is the New Testament principle of treating one's enemies with love and mercy is found in the New Testament, as Paul wrote in Romans 12, verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. That's what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12. Where did he get that idea? Well, actually, he was quoting from Proverbs chapter 25, beginning verse 21. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head that's found in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And the Old Testament nowhere says or instructs us to hate one's enemy. Christ said, you have heard that it has been said. That's what some had been taught. They had been taught that one should hate his enemy, but that's not what the Scriptures had taught. As the International Bible Encyclopedia points out on, in this regard, and I'm quoting here, it says, alike in the Old Testament and New Testament, hate of the malevolent sort is unsparingly condemned, both the Old and New Testament. In Numbers 35, verse 20, beginning with verse 20, we read details of the law against murder. And in speaking of one who causes the death of another, it says, Numbers 35, verse 20, if he pushes him out of hatred or while lying in wait, hurls something at him so that he dies, or in enmity, he strikes him with his hand so that he dies. The one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer. So notice what it says here in the Old Testament. If you have hatred for somebody and you strike him out of enmity or hatred so that the person dies, you're guilty of murder. So obviously you're not to hate your enemies in the sense that we normally understand that word because that might lead to murder, of which we would be guilty then. In one of my Bibles, in the marginal reference, beside the phrase, you have heard that it has been said that we read earlier, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, is a reference to Deuteronomy 23 and verse 6. Deuteronomy 23 and verse 6 it says, you shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. And this is taken as a permission to hate one's enemy. But it doesn't say hate anyone in this verse. It says, you shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. But there is no command here to hate anyone. And certainly not hatred of a malevolent sort. The objects of this prohibition were the Ammonites and Moabites. And they were not to be allowed to become members of the congregation. They were not to be allowed to become a part of the nation of Israel, thus sharing in their peace and prosperity. They were not to be hated, but the people of Israel were to avoid these people 
and have nothing to do with them, leaving their judgment to God. Now, why was that? The reason is given in Deuteronomy 23 and verse, beginning with verse 3, where God said, An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the eternal, even to their tenth generation. Shall they not enter into the congregation of the eternal forever, because they met you not with bread and water in the way when you came forth out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. So they were to be cut off from the congregation perpetually, or at least to the tenth generation, said God, because they were antagonistic toward the people of Israel coming out of Egypt, and they hired Balaam to curse the nation. Now, you might think that law applying to Ammonites and Moabites under the Old Covenant would have no application under the New Covenant. But in fact, this law does apply under the New Covenant. And it applies, however, in a much broader sense. And Jesus Christ explained exactly how that law applies under the New Covenant. In Matthew chapter 25, beginning with verse 31, he said, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit on the throne of His glory, and before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he shall, shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then shall the king say to them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me, and I was in prison, and you came to me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and fed you, or thirsty and gave you drink? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king shall answer and say to, you, to them, Truly I say to you, inasmuch as you have done it to one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it to me. Then shall he say also to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in naked, and you clothed me not, sick and in prison, and you visited me not. They shall also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? Or a stranger, or naked or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then shall he answer them saying, Truly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. You see, the prohibition pronounced on the Ammonites and Moabites was an application of a spiritual principle, and really a lesson for us. The spiritual Ammonites and Moabites, so to speak, will be excluded from God's kingdom and punished with an everlasting punishment. 
by applying that very same principle that we find written there in the book of Deuteronomy that we quoted concerning the Ammonites and the Moabites. But we see the principle is, is much broader in the New Covenant. It's applied in a different way and in a much broader way. And so we see that the laws of the Old Covenant, even though those that some might regard as antiquated or insignificant, have a magnified application under the New Covenant. Remember, it was prophesied of the Messiah that he would magnify the law and make it honorable in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 21. So, since the application of the law is much broader and deeper under the New Covenant, our responsibilities as Christians are much greater than were those of the Israelites under the Old Covenant because we have a better covenant with better promises. Does it make sense then that God would require less of us rather than more of us? Paul said, as we read, he said, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses of how much sore punishment suppose you shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and counted the blood of the covenant, the new covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and done despite to the Spirit of grace. Those who despised Moses' law suffered only a physical death from which they will be resurrected. But those who are incorrigible, who despise the law of Christ to the point of incorrigibility, will be punished with us with eternal death. As we read in Revelation 21 and verse 8, the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers, idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. In other words, those who are given to these sins and refuse to repent will suffer the second death. By the way, that shows they will be resurrected. Some questioned whether there's such a resurrection, but even incorrigibles will be resurrected to suffer a second death. Those people who are in that category will be those who've had every opportunity to repent but have adamantly refused to do so. As we read in Hebrews 10 and verse 26, if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. And Paul wrote Hebrews 6 and verse 4 and following verses, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. Seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now you might say, well, I know people who knew the truth and then left it for a while and then came back. Well, those people had not seared their conscience to the point of incorrigibility. Someone who is in this category is, has got, gotten to the point where they're, they're unreachable, where they cannot and will not repent because they have seared their conscience 
to the point where they are totally hardened and repudiated God to the point that they simply cannot repent. Jesus warned us in Matthew 12, beginning with verse 31, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. What this means is resisting God to the point of incorrigibility. It means open and unyielding rebellion against God to the point of complete hardness of heart and unwillingness to repent. And that kind of condition is not something that can be remedied. Now, God can forgive any sin if one is willing to repent. But he does not forgive sin if one refuses to repent. Now, you might ask, why do we not find any place in the New Testament where the law is codified? That is, where it is written out in ABC fashion completely. There is no place, for example, in the New Testament where even so much as the Ten Commandments appear all together in the same passage. Or Now, every one of the Ten Commandments is confirmed in the New Testament, but you don't find a list of the Ten Commandments in order as we find, for example, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 5. We don't find that in the New Testament. It's not because we're not under the law, as some suppose. Paul said that he was under the law to Christ. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 21. The reason we don't find the law codified in that fashion in the New Testament is because that had already been done in the first five books of, of the Bible, the law of Moses. The New Testament was not written to codify the law in that fashion, but to show how the application of those laws had been changed, actually broadened under the institution of the New Covenant. The New Testament explains in considerable detail how those very same laws are to be applied only in a much broader way. Now, we're not given every detail and example of how every single known law of God is to be applied under the new covenant. But we are given enough information that with the guidance of God's Spirit and through careful and diligent study of the Scriptures and prayer, we can eventually come to understand how the laws of God ought to be applied. Notice what Paul wrote to Timothy. He said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 15, From a child you have known the Holy Scriptures. Now, what Scriptures was he talking about? He was primarily talking about the Old Testament because, for one thing, it's unlikely that very much, if any, of the New Testament had even been written when Timothy was a child. He said, you've known from a child the Holy Scriptures, 
which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So through diligent study of the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament, we can come to understand with the help of the Holy Spirit how to apply God's laws in our own lives. And that brings us to another facet of our discussion concerning the relationship between the two covenants, and that is where specifically does the Old Testament fit? Now, there are some churches that totally reject the Old Testament and claim that we are to use only the New Testament. But that's not what we find we're instructed by Paul and others as we just read the Scripture where Paul said that all Scripture is profitable. And Paul, as well as other writers of the New Testament, continually referred to the Old Testament as the source or the authority behind what they were teaching. In fact, a sizable portion, some have said about a third of the New Testament, consists of quotes or paraphrases from the Old Testament. And Paul continually referred to the law as the authority for his teachings. Some people think that Paul did away with the law or his writings implied that the law was abrogated and done away with, but that's kind of strange since Paul continually quotes the law as the authority for what he instructs us to do. For example, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul was discussing tithes and offerings with the Corinthians. And we won't get into the details about what he says here, but his primary emphasis there was the fact that he was not personally using money, tithe money, from the Corinthians. And some have taken that to, to imply that Paul did not teach tithing at all, but that is not true because there are other scriptures where he clearly did teach tithing. But notice what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 12. He said, if others are partakers of this right, he's talking about the right to use, he doesn't specifically mention tithes there, but that's what he's talking about. If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, he's speaking we, meaning him and his companions who were helping him in the ministry. Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul was telling them that he, as an apostle, was not using a right that belonged to him. The right to use money taken from the congregation for his own personal living expenses. That congregation, there were other congregations that he did take money from. And concerning tithing itself, we have a sermon on our website entitled Christian Tithing that goes into the tithing question in some detail. But the point here is that Paul is discussing his authority to use church funds for his living. 
which he was not doing in the case of many from the Corinthians at that time. And in 1 Corinthians 9, he starts out with general statements tending to prove his apostleship and his equal right of support to that of other apostles. And then in verse 7, he draws some analogies such as a soldier receives support of his country, a vine dresser of his vineyard, a herdsman of his flock. But notice the ultimate proof. He says in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 8, Say I these things as a man, or says not the law the same also? Say I these things as a man, or says not the law the same also? Notice he is appealing to the law, the Old Testament, as the source of his authority. Now what law is he referring to? Well, he goes on to say, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treads out the corn. That's the law that he is referring to in this particular instance. He goes on to say, Does God take care for oxen, or says he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written. Now, if there were what one would consider a minor law of the Old Testament, surely this would be one of them. You shall not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treads out the corn. But Paul uses this law from the law of Moses, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, as his authority to receive support as a minister of the gospel under the New Testament, under the New Covenant. And from this apparently minor law of the Old Covenant, Paul has induced a spiritual principle giving him authority to receive support or living expenses from the church. And the principle behind that law of the Old Covenant, taught by Christ as well as by Paul, is that the laborer is worthy of his reward. As we read in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, and Luke chapter 10, verse 7, the laborer is worthy of his reward. That's why God established the tithing law. God gave the Levites the tithe under the Old Covenant for their service in the, in the temple and in the ministry of the temple because the laborer is worthy of his reward. And this principle applies with equal force to oxen or, for that matter, to ministers, to plumbers, shopkeepers, or what have you. And Paul says that that law was written for our sakes. And that could apply to the entire law of Moses. It was written for our sakes so that we could learn from it, so that we could understand the principles behind it. Now, Paul's enemies of his own day accused him of teaching against the law, as many modern enemies of the Bible also teach that Paul did away with the law. Notice in Acts 21 and verse 27, it says, Jews from Asia seeing him in the temple, speaking of Paul, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people 
the law and this place. Notice they were accusing him of teaching against the law. Now, here's what Paul said later on in answer to similar accusations. In Acts chapter 24, begin with verse 13. Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me, because this I confess unto you, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Notice he said, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Paul did not cast away the Old Testament. He said he believed all of it. Though he was called a heretic because he lived by its precepts as magnified in the New Covenant. And even toward the end of his life, we're told in Acts chapter 28, verse 23, that Paul expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. Notice he was teaching them about Jesus out of the law of Moses and from the prophets. And in Romans 16, verse 26, Paul wrote, Now is made manifest, speaking of the gospel, it is now made manifest by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. There are countless places where principles revealed in the Old Testament are shown being applied in the New Testament in concrete everyday situations. So it would be foolish to claim that the Old Testament has no relevance to us as Christians. For example, one place is in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 1, where it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Also in James chapter 2, James wrote in verse 8, If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well, but if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Again, this scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is from the Old Testament. So if you throw out the Old Testament, you are throwing out God's instruction book for how to live your life as a Christian. At least you're throwing out a major portion of it. What we need to understand is that there are vital principles revealed in the Old Testament, just as there are in the New Testament, and many of these principles are amplified and further revealed in the New Testament. And so the two complement one another. They're not contrary to one another, but they complement and support one another. And that's how we ought to view the scriptures of the Bible, Old and New Testaments. Remember, Paul wrote to Timothy that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, how does the new covenant provide 
for that which was lacking under the old covenant, namely conversion by God's Spirit. I've said before that one of the major differences between the old covenant and the new covenant, perhaps the major difference, is that conversion was not required for one to enter into the old covenant. When the people of Israel came out of Egypt, they were not required to have undergone conversion when they entered into the old covenant. Even when they entered into the promised land, they were circumcised physically, but they were not circumcised of heart. And most of them never repented and they never received the Holy Spirit as a consequence. It wasn't required under that covenant. And that's the reason the covenant failed. It was a physical nation. But the Israel of God is a spiritual nation. And the Israel of God will ultimately be composed of spirit beings who have the mind of God. And those individuals who are of the Israel of God, that is the church, under the new covenant, must be converted. They must undergo a change of heart and mind, circumcision of the heart, as it is referred to in Scripture. And that is a requirement for being under the new covenant. In Romans 8 and verse 9, it says, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Under the new covenant, if you do not have God's Spirit, you're not really under the new covenant because that's a requirement to be a part of the church of God, the Israel of God, as it's referred to in the book of Galatians. The Spirit of God is given to those who repent at the hearing of the truth. And that's found even in the Old Testament where it says in Proverbs 1 and verse 23, Turn or repent at my rebuke, Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make known my words to you. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Peter said to those who were listening to him at the time and were being convicted of their sins through his preaching, he said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice that they were to repent to receive the Spirit of God. And then, of course, repentance means you begin to live your life differently. You begin to obey God instead of rebel against Him. And so we read in Acts 5, verse 32, of the Holy Spirit, which God gives to those who obey Him. God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey Him, that is, those who repent and who are of a mind to yield to God and begin obeying Him. They may not be obeying perfectly, but they are of a mindset where they are seeking to obey God. That's what it takes to have the Holy Spirit. And as one progressively yields to God and grows and develops spiritually, God's Spirit guides him into a more comprehensive, more complete knowledge of the truth. Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, verse 13, 
However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. But this is a process of being guided into truth. And this is something really that occurs to us, might occur in some ways collectively, but it occurs certainly individually as we grow in understanding and grace. When one repents and receives the Spirit of God, he becomes, in God's sight, a new creation, a new person who, in a sense, did not exist previously. He becomes a spiritual babe in Christ. As it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So if one is in Christ, he is a new creation through receiving the Spirit of God. One who has the Spirit of God is no longer limited to solely the fleshly impulses of human nature apart from God's Spirit. Now those fleshly impulses are still present, but such a person has the power of God's Spirit available to reveal spiritual knowledge and to give him the power to overcome his fleshly nature. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12, it says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who, or which as it should be here, is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God, Notice that we have received the Spirit of God so that we might know the truth, the things that have been given to us by God. In 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, it says, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The Spirit has to do with your mind because the mind is where your character is. Sin begins in the mind, and so does righteousness. And what God's Spirit does is it gives us a sound mind through spiritual understanding. In order to develop spiritually, however, we must actively seek God daily and actively strive against the flesh, exercising our own will with the help of God's Spirit, striving against our own fleshly nature to overcome it, we must set our minds willfully, deliberately on the things of the Spirit, not allowing ourselves to be led about by carnal, lawless desires. Paul wrote about that. He wrote about that in various places. But in Romans 8, notice what Paul wrote, beginning with verse 3. What the law, that is the law, the old covenant, could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. Notice that, that the weakness of the Old Covenant was the flesh, the fleshly nature, the unconverted nature of those who were a party that, to that covenant, the people of Israel. But what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law 
might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So, where do you set your mind? That's a question we probably ought to ask ourselves regularly. When we sin, what draws us into sin? It's inevitably thinking the wrong thoughts, having our minds focused on the wrong place. Paul said to be carnally minded is death, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. That's why the old covenant failed. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit which dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what Paul is telling us here is that if we remain faithful, we will be resurrected from the dead. And those who are alive at the time of Christ's coming will be changed into spirit beings along with those resurrected at that time no longer to be flesh and blood, but fully spirit beings in the likeness of Jesus Christ as sons of God in His eternal kingdom. So not only is our mind affected by receiving the Spirit of God where we become a new creation, and we are expected to be thinking differently, and we will be thinking differently if we are focused on the things of the Spirit, but eventually... This fleshly nature is completely done away with and we will be spirit beings through the power of God's spirit. Notice it says, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit and we will live. And that's explained further in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 42, following verses where it says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Not a fleshly body, not a flesh and blood body, but a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Now, do we know everything there is to know about how one is resurrected to a spiritual body? No. We know very little about it, actually. But we do know that's what the Word of God says. So, the bottom line here is that there are two ways, at least two ways, 
that the need for God's Spirit is provided for under the new covenant. The first is receiving God's Spirit at the initial stage of conversion as one repents. And the second, and by the way, we must continue to repent to retain God's Spirit. And the second is the resurrection into the likeness of Jesus Christ as spirit beings in the very image of God. Paul wrote in Philippians 3 and verse 20, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to himself. So those who will ultimately be in the family of God will be spirit beings who will be like God, have a nature like God, a spirit nature. And they will be sons of God, sharing his nature just as if you have a son or a daughter your son or daughter has your very same nature. The son or daughter is not you, but he or she has your nature. And we will have, those who are in the resurrection will have the nature of God, their own individual traits. But in terms of character and nature, they will be like God under his supreme authority. Of course, some have claimed we couldn't be like God because then that would make us, you know, on a par with God. Well, in some ways we will be on a par with God, but in other ways we will never be on a par with God because we will always be under His authority. In 1 John 3 and verse 1 it says, What manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. So that is the hope and the promise of God's Word, that we will be like Him. And with that hope and that promise, we need to be seeking to purify ourselves, that is, through repentance, and seeking God, and letting His Spirit motivate and empower us to overcome our fleshly nature. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49, Paul said, As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. And then he also said in verse 28, 1 Corinthians 15, Now when all things are made subject to Him, speaking of the Father, God the Father, then the Son Himself will also be subject to Him, who put all things under Him, that God may be all in all. Notice what it says, that God may be all in all everything subject to the Father, that God may be all in all. The failure of Israel under the Old Covenant was that while they had God's laws given to them, 
spiritual conversion was not a requirement for entering into that covenant, most did not have the Holy Spirit. They were not converted. Under the new covenant, conversion is a requirement. No one can enter into the new covenant without the Holy Spirit. Thus, the missing ingredient, spiritual conversion, which resulted in the failure of Israel under the old covenant, is accounted for in the new covenant. In the next and what probably will be the final sermon in this series, we will discuss questions such as to whom does the new covenant apply and its duration.